Welcome back to the show. This episode is brought to you by Blinkist. The opportunity cost of reading a book isn't really the $30 price tag. It mostly consists in the hours of time you invest in reading or partly reading the book. Hours which you could spend reading another book, building a business, rollerblading with your hair out, whatever it is you like to do. To help me triage which books to read, I often use Blinkist. Blinkist is an app which takes the key ideas and insights from thousands of nonfiction titles across 27 categories and gathers them together in 15-minute text and audio explainers that help you understand the core ideas. It's kind of like Amazon's Look Inside feature or Kindle sample feature, but better because it actually condenses the whole thesis of the book, making it perfect for those who want to cheat at their book club. Blinkist has extended their philosophy of less is more to long podcast episodes, presenting the key learnings from famous shows in 15-minute shortcasts. They do this by directly collaborating with podcast creators like Michael Lewis, who hosts Against the Rules. For Lewis's part, he personally shares the highlights from his own podcasts with you. To discover this world of blinks and shortcasts, head to blinkers.com slash swagman. Right now, they have a special offer just for JSP listeners. You can get 25% off an annual subscription, and you get to try Blinkist Premium free for seven days. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T dot com slash swagman. This episode is also sponsored by Truebill. Most of us have probably lost count of the number of subscriptions we have. I tried to tally mine up the other day and indeed lost count. Netflix, MailChimp, Apple, Google, Spotify, YouTube Premium, Dropbox, and then all the random little ones. But it's the ones that are unwanted and forgotten that continue to sting you. That's the problem Truebill solves. Truebill is a new app that helps you identify and stop paying for subscriptions you don't need, want, or simply forgot about. Truebill has over 2 million users and helped save them over $100 million. In the app, you can see all your subscriptions in one place, keep the ones you want, and cancel the ones you don't. A Truebill concierge is also there when you need them to cancel unwanted subscriptions, so you don't have to call up and talk to humans at these different companies you're subscribed to in order to cancel those subscriptions. So, to start cancelling your unused subscriptions, head to truebill.com swagman. Truebill.com swagman. It could save you thousands a year. That's truebill.com swagman. You're listening to the Jolly Swagman Podcast. Here's your host, Joe Walker. Welcome back to the show. Having been dismayed by the fall of Kabul on the 15th of August, astounded by America's abrupt abandonment of Afghanistan, and saddened by the ongoing tragedy in that country, I thought I should get in touch with an old friend of the pod to talk about it. Rightly or wrongly, Afghanistan has earned the moniker, the Graveyard of Empires. It's a land of jagged mountains, a cultural morass, where the British Empire, Soviet Union, and now the United States have all gone to spill copious amounts of blood and treasure for little gain. Barrels of ink have now been spilled as well, analyzing the unique quandary of Afghanistan and inscribing a catalogue of errors on this latest imperial tombstone. But I wanted to place the Afghanistan crisis in its historical context, and few English speakers are better placed to be my guide than acclaimed historian and writer William Dalrymple, who returns to the podcast. Willie has written many award-winning and best-selling books, including most recently The Anarchy. 
You know that cliched question, if you could invite five people living or dead to a dinner party, who would they be? And it usually receives answers like Jesus, Alexander the Great, Winston Churchill. Well, I would be sorely tempted to skip over the conquerors and the saints and invite Willie Dalrymple. He's amazing company, but more pertinently, he's the author of the brilliant book, Return of a King, The Battle for Afghanistan, which was published back in 2013 and centers on the first Anglo-Afghan war of 1839-42, to which was the greatest military disaster in British imperial history. Willie spent a ton of time in Afghanistan and counts former President Hamid Karzai as a personal friend. In this episode, Willie and I traverse the history of military conflict in Afghanistan and then analyze the complex cultural and political landscape of modern Afghanistan. I hope you enjoy the conversation. William Dalrymple, welcome back to the Jolly Swagman podcast. It's very nice to be doing it in remote rather than a sweltering studio in Adelaide, Joe. Last time you nearly put me in a sauna. <laughs> well, I, do, I like to put you through a physical challenge before the mental one. Well, this time we had a bit of a technical challenge getting the microphone working, but we are up and running. We are ready to go. We are indeed. So you're right. It's been nearly two years since we were holed up in that derelict studio in Adelaide. And I had without air conditioning, without a fan. Remind you, remind you. Yes, in a, in a car park in one of Adelaide's industrial illustrious suburbs, and I had so much fun it during that. A part of Adelaide I had never seen before. <laughs> <laughs> I had so much fun during that conversation, but I had even more fun afterwards at the Adelaide Jaipur Literature Festival, getting to see you in action, filling in for a speaker who dropped out, and delivering an extraordinary extempore exposition on the Kohinoor diamond. And then obviously going out for dinner afterwards with Andy from Bloomsbury and Sanjoy and some of the other organisers. Much fun was had. I mean, given all sorts of terrifying Australian dishes to eat, including, <laughs> as I remember, emu, crocodile, I can't remember, kangaroo. There was something on the menu I didn't like. <laughs> yeah, all sorts. And I would have hated to have been a gin and tonic in Adelaide that night. But it was a, a wonderful night and we're gathered for an altogether more sobering reason. And that is the capitulation of the West and of the Afghan government in Afghanistan. And I want to take the long view. I want to talk about the history of military conflict in Afghanistan, but I know next to nothing about it. So I was hoping you could be my tutor. Well, never believe a Scotsman, but uh, I'll do my best. <laughs> Fabulous. So the British Empire, as you well know, Will, first stepped foot in Afghanistan, militarily speaking, in the spring of 1839. That was the first Afghan war. But the military involvement of the West in Afghanistan stretches all the way back to 330 BC and the conquests of Alexander the Great. So his long shadow lingers in Afghanistan today, for example, in the name of Kandahar, which probably evolved from Iskandar and was founded as one of the many. Possibly. It could also be the Sanskrit for Gandhara is the other theory, which I think is now gaining currency. But yeah, there are all sorts of Alexandrias lurking <laughs> under the soil in Afghanistan. There's one under Bagram Air Base, uh, oh, wow. which was uh, called Alexandria Under the Mountains, Wow, which he founded as well. Herat, I think, was founded by him, was also in Alexandria at one point. Many Alexandrias. You're right. Yes, the um, the etymology of Kandahar is, is debatable. But does Alexander the Great's influence, is it in any deeper sense etched into the cultures and psyche of modern Afghans? Modern Afghans, uh, maybe not, but uh, it left a, a long footprint in Afghan history because when Alexander died in Babylon uh, shortly after his conquests, uh, there remained uh, Greek colonies all over Afghanistan. 
and even in on the banks of the Oxus, the northernmost Alexandria, a city called Iconum, which had uh, theatres, stadia, um, a, a temple with a quote from the Delphic oracles on it, uh, an extraordinarily unmediated pure Greek culture. And uh, it's an extraordinary bit of, uh, of, of Hellenistic culture, which then in the centuries to come, expanded. So you get a series of Indo-Greek kings called things like Heliocles of the Punjab and uh, Eucrides of Kandahar and, and these sort of guys who wear either Greek helmets or elephant head helmets and who worship a variety of Hindu, Zoroastrian and Greek deities. And they conquer certainly as far as Delhi uh, and quite possibly, according to some accounts, as far as Patna in Bihar, where the Buddha had been preaching only you know 300 years earlier and so um, a long Hellenistic footprint uh, in Afghanistan um, but in time all these different bits of western culture were snuffed out Iconum fell after about 300 years and was just left uh, an empty ruin and um, by about the, the first century BC, there were a handful of Greeks or, or people with Greek names left. Uh, and by the end, it was just snuffed out. Nothing, nothing remained. So no, I think uh, you can say confidently that uh, uh, very little of Alexander's culture remains in modern Afghanistan, though Alexander himself became a great figure in Islamic uh, storytelling and myth. And, and there is a, a Iskandar Nama, um, uh, the Alexander romance, which has a uh, uh, an Islamic form, which still tells story of of the great deeds of Iskander, and he goes off to find Khwaja Kizar, who has the waters of eternal life, and all this sort of stuff, which you won't find in the history books, but which uh, um, is is very much part of the folklore of that part of the world. Wow! Before the first Afghan war, how did the denizens of Af- Afghanistan describe themselves? W- was Afghanistan a clearly defined entity before that time? No, not at all. Um, Afghanistan as a unit which resembles the modern nation state really exists from the time of a man called Ahmed Shah Durrani. Um, when we last met Joe, we were talking about the Kohinoor diamond and, and the man who stole the Kohinoor diamond from India, first of all, was Nadir Shah, who raided Delhi in 1739. His main bodyguard was a man called Ahmed Shah. And uh, allegedly, uh, Nadir Shah fished him out of the dungeons of Kandahar when he conquered Kandahar. Uh, and he rose, uh, this kind of near do well rose to uh, be the head bodyguard. And on the night of Nadir Shah's assassination, at least according to Ahmed Shah Durrani's own account, he protected the women of the harem with his life and uh, defended these ladies while rape and pillage pursued. Uh, throughout the camp and in the morning as a, as a present uh, in gratitude for his protection uh, the chief wife of Nadir Shah handed over uh, the Kohinoor diamond which she then used as the capital to create a state in Afghanistan and he declared himself uh, emir and created an, uh, the Durrani empire which at a chunk of the Uzbek empire to the north at a chunk of the Persian empire to the left uh, nibbled away a, a bit of China to the right and, and gobbled up a, a great chunk of the Mughal Empire to the south. And that created for the first time a state which resembles the modern nation state of, Af- of Afghanistan, um, which up to that point had always thought of itself as part of a wider area called Khurasan, 
or Khorasan. And Khorasan geographically encompassed quite a lot of Persia, all of what's now Afghanistan. And that name, Khorasan, was the original name really for uh, Durrani Afghanistan. And it's only after the first Afghan war that people begin to talk about the, the kingdom of the Afghans. Uh, and eventually, in, by about the 1870s, Afghanistan. I apologize for my next question, because I'm going to ask you to uh, <laughs> talk about something you've you've talked about a thousand times. The first Afghan war was a catastrophe, a costly catastrophe for the British Empire. How did it begin? So the thing to remember is that the force which captured India after the breakup of the Mughal Empire, after the Taj Mahal is built, after the Peacock Throne is constructed... Uh, that world is not brought down by uh, the British Raj, as is often mistakenly said. It's brought down by a public company listed on the stock exchange with a share price, uh, operating out of a single office in Leadenhall Street in London. And um, that company was called the East India Company. And it started very modestly a century from uh, into its existence only 35 people uh, worked for it um, out of this one office uh, now under what's the Lloyd's building uh, the Lloyd's of London insurance building in uh, uh, in the city of London and this amazingly small skeleton staff by borrowing money from Indian bankers and paying top dollar for Indian mercenaries captured first Bengal, then Upper India, then all of India. And by 1830s, were eyeing the area to the north. There was this huge area of Central Asia. They knew it had wonderful lapis and silks and carpets. And uh, and they saw it both as a major uh, source of, of mineral and other resources for their trade, plus uh, a, a large market for their goods. And so having used the Ganges very successfully as a way of penetrating economically uh, the heart of India. Uh, the obvious strategy, they thought, was to use the Indus to do the same for Central Asia. The trouble was there was a whole set of different rulers in the way. There was, first of all, uh, the emirs of Sindh in what's now sort of Karachi, the, the Pakistan coast. Uh, above that in the Punjab, there was uh, Ranjit Singh and the Sikh Empire, which was uh, staffed and armed by an incredible array of ex-Napoleonic generals who brought Napoleonic tactics to Lahore. And then above that, there were a variety of warring kingdoms uh, in what we now called Afghanistan, uh, particularly the uh, uh, descendants of Amin Shah Durrani, um, who was a man called Shah Shudra Mulk. He'd just been kicked out, and a man called Dost Muhammad, who was a very distant cousin, uh, took over. And uh, so basically, as so often in world history, it's economics, it's the money. Uh, and uh, what the East India Company was after was uh, a source of new trade materials and, and, and new markets. And they thought the best way to do that was to send an expedition leapfrogging over the Sikh Empire uh, and to take uh, Afghanistan. And what particularly spurred them on was a, a pretty spurious idea, then really uh, pure paranoia rather than anything coherent, that the Russians uh, were going to come uh, riding down the Khyber Pass with their Cossacks. Now, at the same time as the East India Company had been moving west and northwards across India, getting by the 1830s as far as the Sutlej River in the Punjab, 
the Russians have been moving south with equal speed, about 100 miles every decade, uh, under Peter the Great and his successors. And they, by the 1830s, had gone as far south as the Orenburg Line, which is sort of way north of all those caravan cities like Bukhara, Samarkand, Kiva, that now, uh, you know, are tourist destinations in the stands, particularly Uzbekistan. Um, so the Russians were north of that. And so they were still, you know, thousands of miles and many kingdoms between the Russians and the company. Nonetheless, hawkish foreign policy wonks and so-called experts in London sitting looking at the maps in their Whitehall clubs or their uh, war rooms in in, uh, uh, in Pall Mall uh, dreamt up this idea that the Russians could very soon um, send envoys or troops with great ease through those other uh, empty areas and charge down the Khyber Pass and rob Britain of its the jewel of its crown, its uh, uh, profitable Indian territories. And so somebody called Lord Ellenborough, who was kind of, you know, incredibly like the neocon hawks prior to 9-11, cooks up uh, a, a, a kind of dodgy dossier, which played the same function as the yellow cake and all those scares about what weapons of mass destruction prior to 2001. And in both cases, amazingly, you actually get hawks imagining a threat which doesn't exist and by paranoically pursuing it, actually bring it into, into being. Um, because the Russians begin to read British books on uh, on Central Asia um, and realise that there'd be British agents messing around in Bukhara and so on, notably a man called Alexander Burns, who published a book. It's translated into French and the Russians read it in French. And suddenly they all wake up and say, there's lots of Brits there. We better send some spies down to, to, to counter them. So uh, just like in many ways, there was no Al-Qaeda in Iraq until George Bush invaded it and sort of was the godfather uh, of Islamic terrorism, which didn't exist under the Ba'athist Saddam Hussein, who hated Islamists and who tortured them and strung them up. So in Afghanistan in the 19th century, the Brits created a Russian threat when none existed. Um, even so, it was only then a very distant threat, very, very far-fetched that uh, any Russian army would be able to march through Afghanistan and uh, appear anywhere in India. So in 1839, having worked themselves up into a lather, believing that Russia was about to uh, form an alliance with Afghanistan and that uh, you know it was only a matter of time before Cossacks uh, appeared on the Khyber Pass, um, the East India Company sends an army leapfrogging over the Punjab uh, crossing the Baluchistan desert in the middle of summer with with uh, uh, sepoys uh, dropping like flies in their winter uniforms in the withering heat. Uh, it's an absurd invasion in, in the way that only 19th century British uh, uh, military expeditions possibly can be <laughs> absurd. They, uh, every officer apparently brought 26 camel loads of uniforms, uh, 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 every senior officer, uh, for their mess dinners. They brought a pack of foxhounds. Uh, 26 camels were given over to cheroots, in other words, cigars. Um, one camel carried only eau de cologne. Um, and so it's absurd. And the only thing they don't have is a map. They don't have a map because they, there isn't one. So they're stumbling no, around the passes, the, the wandering around the, the camels back. sepoys dropping like flies, massive death and unnecessary uh, fatalities uh, just out of ignorance and Id idiocy. And yet, at the end of the day, you know, most of them do make it through to Kandahar and take 
Kandahar and Kabul with barely a, a shot fired. So suddenly, there they find themselves in Kabul. They assume that the Afghans uh, are not at all the military people they've been led to believe because they've got in without fighting. And they proceed to do sort of amateur theatricals, um, shoot duck, go fox uh, fox hunting with these fox hands, which again, amazingly have made it through the Baluchistan desert in the middle of summer and generally begin to misbehave. And then the thing that really gets the Afghans, as you can imagine, is that suddenly there are 20,000 single men on the plane outside Kabul. And there is obviously a premium on Afghan women. Um, and Afghan honor is very rapidly offended when, when Afghan women do start drifting out of Kabul at night to find their way into the contumments and coming back richer in the morning. And this reaches a particular point when one of the British commanders, Alexander Burns, the guy that wrote the travel book that had alerted the Russians, um, who is a bit of out of a job because everyone hates him because he's very famous. He's, he's had an audience with the Queen. Uh, all the people who've been slogging away doing espionage for years in Central Asia uh, think this guy's a bit of a wanker because he's, he's, he's produced this book. He's got gold medals for the Royal Geographical Society. And so when he arrives in Afghanistan, no one will really give him a job. So he's, he's nominally the second in command, but in fact, he has no work. Uh, what does he do? He starts shagging the local women, but particularly uh, he starts uh, seducing the mistress of a, a warrior leader called Abdullah Khan Achaksai. And Abdullah Khan Achaksai will not have this. He, stand, he, he first of all sort of uh, has a, a meeting of his tribesmen and, and proclaims, according to one epic poem, that uh, Alexander Burns has ridden the donkey of desire into the field of stupidity. <laughs> uh, and uh, they then descend on Alexander Burns' house, which, according to Afghan accounts, Af uh, Alexander Burns is in bed with two, if not three women at the time, uh, having a high old time when Abdullah Khan Achaksai breaks in with his, his ruffians. And Burns is cut down and a revolution starts. And the British are completely unprepared for it. They've thought this is just a jolly duck shooting expedition uh, with a bit of amateur theatricals. And they've put their tents and, and the beginning of what will be a cantonment, they'd hoped, uh, in a valley uh, over, overlooked by hills, which, of course, today inevitably is the site of the American embassy, uh, an indefensible site <laughs> next to the airport today. Um, so... Uh, the British skirmish uh, for uh, for a, for a few, few few weeks, but it's very clear they're surrounded. There's no supplies coming in. Winter is approaching. Winter is is coming. In in the words of Game of Thrones, and um, the British have no option really but to negotiate a retreat. So, having pushed this huge army of twenty thousand up from India through the desert, they now are proposing to march south in the middle of winter when no one, when zero, you know, sub-zero temperatures, swirling blizzards, snowdrifts everywhere, uh, which is an even more absurd plan than going to Afghanistan in the first place. And they begin to notice that the Afghans are rather suspiciously dragging out negotiations and, and they, they, they realise that something's up, but they don't quite put two and two together. Of course, when they begin to retreat on the 6th of January, 1842, um, 17,000 men, women and children, lots and lots of, you know, uh, people who are, uh, actually um, there to feed the horses and cook the meals and uh, an enormous Indian support staff who are unarmed. And then about 6,000 troops who are the garrison in Kabul. When they begin to march down, the shooting and the sniping begins almost instantly. But before they can march back again, uh, looters and various other rioters break into the deserted contumments and burn them down, just like we saw in Bagram 
uh, when the Americans left uh, in, in a great hurry, turned the lights off, the locals turned up and, and ran off with anything that wasn't welded to the ground. Um, and the same happens in the British cantonments. And day one is pretty bad. Day two is a nightmare. And they realized that the Afghans have spent the time when they were negotiating, building rather amazing blockades uh, to stop the Brits getting through to where they were meant to be going. Uh, including an enormous holly hedge at a place called Jugdulic, which not even the cavalry can pass. So these guys are sitting ducks. The Afghans have got long hunting rifles called Jezails that can shoot about half a mile. Uh, the British uh, army musket called the Brown Best can only shoot 500 yards. Uh, and uh, and so they just, it's like shooting fish in a barrel. Uh, it's just uh, a, a turkey shoot. And by the last day, there are about 400 men left, still alive, desperately trying to get through to the, the British garrison at Jalalabad. Um, the Lancers are cut down one by one. And in the end, it is just one man, uh, uh, Dr. Bryden, who makes it through to Jalalabad. And the only reason he get, makes it through is he is a, a, a big reader. And he has a sort of hard bat book, like this is an edition of Return of the King, which something like this and in his hat. He has a forage hat, and and because he's a reader, he has it on his head as he's riding his horse. And when they take a swipe at him, it goes through the big hardback book, but it doesn't. The sword doesn't go into his skull, uh, so he emerges bookless but alive <laughs> at Jalalabad. Um, but virtually no one else does. A few Gurkhas make it through. A week later, the Gurkhas, of course, know what to do in the snow, and they've hidden in a cave somewhere, and they make it through. A strange Greek merchant called Mr. Benes, who's been sort of selling kebabs at the contumement, uh, uh, makes it through, again, having hidden in a cave with a bottle of ouzo for a week. Uh, and there are a few hostages who survive. Uh, but basically, the whole army's wiped out. And what is extraordinary is when you go, when I was well, certainly when I went to Afghanistan in 2006, 7, 8, 9, and was researching all this, it was the same story. Not only was the American embassy there on the site of the contumement, Hamid Karzai turns out to be the great, great, great grandson of Shah Shuja, uh, who was the Popozai chief that the British put on the throne again. Uh, the guys who massacre the Brits in 1842 in the pass of Jugdalik and finally in the last stand of Gundamuk, they are the Gilzai tribe uh, and they are now the foot soldiers of the Taliban. So beneath what looks to us like a, a straightforward uh, knockabout between you know liberal democrats on one side and 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 sort of medieval barbarian islamists turns out in fact to be just a tribal fight that's been going on for 150 years with the uh, uh the duranis and the and the sadazais on one side in kabul and the gilzai who are the kind of nomads to dispossess the herdsmen and so on uh are fighting for the taliban uh and it all it looks incredibly familiar and the afghans know this you know there's no we can't see these parallels because none of us know the history. But to the Afghans, this is all absolutely, you know, like the Battle of Britain or something. This is something that every Afghan is brought up with, or Trafalgar, or if you're an Indian, the freedom struggle. Um, if you're an Australian, perhaps Gallipoli. You know, it's just one of those stories that every kid is brought up with and everyone knows. And what's invisible to us is blindingly and painfully obvious to every Afghan. Uh, so much so that the, the main resistance leader, uh, Wazir Akbar Khan, that's what they named the diplomatic area uh, after in Kabul today. So it's it, it's an extraordinary case of history repeating. And, and when this book came out, Karzai actually called me to Kabul and asked me to uh, tell him the whole story in detail um, and quiz me over six nights in his palace. Um, and I happily uh, did that in return for an interview. He He would talk to me and I would talk to him. And he actually altered his policy. We didn't 
none of us realized quite how much it altered this policy uh, until it emerged in WikiLeaks that Hillary Clinton was blaming uh, Return of a King, my book on Afghanistan, for Karzai's new intransigent stand. And Karzai had taken away from the book the fact that you could not be perceived to be the, the puppet of the Americans if you wanted to survive uh, in government. And so uh, as soon as he got to Washington under the Obama uh, administration, he began distancing himself and saying, you frigging Americans bombing our people, we don't need you, while at the same time, in fact, taking both military and civilian aid. Uh, and, and he hoped that by distancing himself, he'd be OK. And he, he is still alive, remarkably, and talking to the Taliban today. Well, obviously, Ashraf Ghani has fled. So over those dinners after Iftar and the presidential palace, he, he presented the view to you that he thought the US were doing to him what the British had done to Shah Shuja 170 years before. Exactly. Did you agree with that view? Do you think he was onto something? I think quite clearly uh, that um, in both cases, the countries went there for their own interests. Uh, in the case of the East India Company, they wanted to control the trade uh, and uh, the British government in the background wanted to keep the Russians out. This time, uh, it was, of course, 9-11 and uh, Al-Qaeda that brought the Americans to Afghanistan. It wasn't really that they wanted women to go to school and so on, although obviously they were very happy that they did. And um, what we've seen in the last month is the fact that it's suddenly become in this new isolationist America that's grown up uh, after Trump's America first rhetoric, uh, that uh, foreign interventions are now seen as toxic in domestic American politics. And that is why the Americans have pulled out. It's not because they were defeated by the Taliban. It's not because, you know, at the end of the day, they couldn't win. If the Americans had actually put all their resources in and dropped, you know, five regiments and... Uh, uh, unlimited firepower and, and and all their air force and everything else, we'd still be fighting that war. You know, they might not be able to defeat the Taliban, but they certainly were not defeated themselves. But what happened was that it was no longer domestically viable in the judgment of Biden. And Biden just decided that he'd be better to let it go. And the opinion polls have not proved that intuition wrong, rather amazingly, while the whole of the rest of the world sees this as the end of the American empire and, uh, uh, and the end of foreign interventions by America, uh, the domestic numbers in America do actually support the notion that a withdrawal was the right thing. They, they criticize how it was done. Uh, but this is something that in domestic politics, Biden will certainly survive. Uh, so yes, Karzai is right that, you know, uh, is of course the case in international politics, no country does something for nothing. Uh, you do it for your own interests. When those interests converge, uh, uh, that's very nice. When they don't, you end up with a mess like we've got in our hands now. The terms of the deal when you had those conversations with Karzai was that he could quiz you on the first Afghan war and you could ask him anything in turn. Do you remember what you asked him or what were you most interested to ask him? Yes, and, and anyone who's interested can read the... Um, there's a long 10,000-word profile I wrote of him, which is in the New York Times magazine, mm. which is still online if you're a subscriber to the New York Times. Uh, and no, I had a lot of fun. He's a very nice man. I mean, Karzai is incredibly charming, which is why he, against all the odds, survived in office so long and so well and is so fondly remembered. Um, I subsequently got him to come to my Jaipur Literature Festival in, in Rajasthan, and I've never seen a more consummate charmer on a stage. There was a vast Indian audience there, about 5,000, not because it was me and him chatting, but because one of the big Bollywood stars had just been on the session before. 
and as is the case in these things with Jaipur, we don't have tickets. You don't have to, uh, unlike, say, in the Adelaide Festival, you don't have to buy a ticket for a specific event. Once you're there, you can just sit in your house and listen to whatever comes next, like watching Netflix or something. Uh, and um, so everyone stayed on because he started entertaining them and singing Hindi film songs and saying how much he loved India and talking about his time uh, as a student in Simla uh, and um, and speaking quite good Hindi. And, and he had the Indian audience eating out of his hand. Um, and he has he's been able to do that in in uh, Kabul too. While Ashraf Ghani, who followed him, was a very different man. Ashraf, extremely clever man, was very kind to me. He helped me find a lot of the sources, which I wrote Return of a King out of, because there are these incredible Pushtun and Urdu and Dari sources recording the first Afghan war. And rather amazingly, no one's used those before. You have a lot of accounts of the first Afghan war, but they're always the, uh, the usual ones that you find from British uh, observers. Uh, the very rich seam of primary sources, giving the Afghan point of view, uh, remain almost untouched. And um, yeah, we we so we Kaza and I um, had had six very jolly nights uh, in in the palace chatting away. Uh, I got a very nice article out of it, and he decided to um, put the finger up at Obama and Hillary Clinton, which which made him very popular at home, as you can imagine. Uh, made me rather less popular. I I went and gave a uh, I was asked sub- subsequent to all this, having so you know so to speak caused some of this mess. <laughs> Um, I was asked to brief the West Wing, uh, the Afghan uh, uh, bit of the White House, and I got a slightly chilly reception. <laughs> <laughs> what, what did the West Wing want to know? Well, the West Wing was interesting. You know, it, there was all these guys, all with top first from Harvard and so on, a lot of them quite young. Many of them had been in Afghanistan, living in containers um, at, at various points, but none of them knew the history. Uh, they you know, they were more or less completely ignorant of the whole story of 1839 to 42. So it's it's both a good illustration of, of two aphorisms. One that uh, uh, Aldous Huxley is famous saying that the only thing you learn from history is that no one learns from history. <laughs> and also the, the other sort of famous line that uh, those that don't learn from history are forced to repeat it. And that's what we've seen in Kabul over the last week. Does history offer lessons beyond the common sense or the bleedingly obvious? Well, th- the fact that you'd be better not to invade Afghanistan seems like a pretty obvious lesson because, you know, there have been so many uh, uh, screwed up missions there. First, the East India Company, then the Raj, then the Russians. Uh, you know, it, 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 we all said when they were going in, have they never read Flashman? Have they, <laughs> have, they, have, they have none of them ever uh, uh, opened a history book? And apparently this was part of sort of British political law in that uh, uh, when... Harold Macmillan was handing over to Sir Alec Douglas Hume, these two chummy Tories, uh, said, oh, um, Hume said, have you got any advice to offer me? And Macmillan said, well, as long as you don't invade Afghanistan, you'll probably be OK. But <laughs> no one seems to have told Tony Blair that. <laughs> I, I just want to briefly digress into some historiography and philosophy. Willie, to what extent do you agree with E.H. Carr's statement in What is History that, quoting him here, It used to be said that the facts speak for themselves. This is, of course, untrue. The facts speak only when the historian calls on them. It is he who decides to which facts to give the floor and in what order or context. Obviously true. And, uh, I mean, what's fascinating about the the history I've been researching for the last 20 years when I've been doing the East India Company history, I've now written four books. It's called The Company Quartet. First one is The Anarchy. Second is White Mughals. Third is this one, Return of a King. And the fourth is The Last Mughal. And 
I find to an astonishing extent that no one's been using the the Mughal or the Afghan or the Urdu sources. Uh, and I worked with some very talented translators, um, a, a guy called Bruce Wanell, who's who's a fluent Pushtu, Urdu, and uh, Farsi and Dari speaker, um, who came and lived with me for for uh, quite a lot of the last twenty years in Delhi, and, and we'd work on these texts together. And it, you know, you can get a completely different set of facts. Uh, and order them completely differently when you see uh, the other po- people's point of view. As Robbie Burns said, you've got to see ourselves as others see us. Uh, and uh, the history of colonialism is a is a very clear example of that. You know, if you were writing a history of the Second World War, you wouldn't think of writing an account that only used British and Australian sources. You'd, of course, use German, Japanese, Italian and everything else. And yet, amazingly, a lot of colonial history is still written using only the British uh, and East India Company version, which is, you know, very easy to do because the National Archives in India and the India Office Library in London, uh, now part of the British Library, uh, have 35 miles in London of of imperial records that you can access. Uh, But you get a completely different set of facts if you go to the Afghan sources. For example, uh, none of the Brits seem to realise quite how disparate and fissured and uh, autonomous, the different parts of the Afghan resistance were. They saw it all as a bunch of people with beards coming at them with with swords. Uh, but in fact, there were you know very distinct tribal elements, some of which were at war or very much suddenly in, in rivalry with each other. And it looks very different from the Afghan point of view. Most of all, uh, you know, uh, the British are seen as evil occupiers. They look on the Brits much as we looked on the Nazis. Uh, and someone like Alexander Burns has always been this rather jolly sort of uh, sprightly hero uh, in British accounts uh, who comes to this tragic end is actually shown to be the sort of uh, Lucifer incarnate, this seducer and betrayer uh, who uh, who has no honour and who admits, uh, finally reaches a justful end at the uh, sword point of Abdullah Khan Achaksai. If we accept that the historian is, is central to history and we don't have to accept that but if we do doesn't that mean that everyone is just going to read their own lesson into afghanistan some will say as harold mcmillan told alec douglas horn as long as you don't invade afghanistan you'll be absolutely fine others will say the lesson of afghanistan is in fact you've got to invade it properly <laughs> <laughs> well yeah i mean it's true there is not you know you could you every interpreter of history will read it his own way and, and bring his own life lessons and experience to that, uh, which is why the writing of history is never finished, because each generation finds new things uh, to recognise. For example, during the great days of the nation state uh, uh, in the Victorian period, everyone began to see Robert Clive and uh, Warren Hastings and all these early Brits in India as you know, the British Empire as uh, building uh, a, a British colony in India. But today, uh, in an age when we have our lives being watched, tracked and so on by Facebook, by Google, uh, by uh, uh, all these uh, huge corporations, um, it's far more interesting to rediscover the fact that it was the East India Company, a corporation uh, with a share price, uh, with an office, uh, with a board of directors, with shareholders uh, that is running this uh, this takeover of Afghanistan, that it's a case of, of a militarized corporation. And this is something which speaks to us and we notice it, but which, you know, was not an issue for the Victorians. And, and they kind of, you know, they 
obfuscate the fact that the company is not the British government. Uh, it's something quite different. Uh, let me share what I think is a convincing lesson to take from the history of war in Afghanistan, and then let me know what you think. So if I had to pick one lesson I found convincing, it would be warning of the dangers of naive interventionism. That is, if you intervene in a complex system, like a country or a culture, and try to change it in a top-down manner, to, to paraphrase Hadip Puri uh, in his book, Perilous Interventions, the desired results are rarely achieved, and it invariably leads to the rise of terrorists and non-state military actors, creating a new set of rivals altogether. So the point is naive interventionism is worse than pissing in the wind. It's like pouring gasoline on the fire. <laughs> And of, of course, none of that is to say that the very US... Elegant, very elegant uh, uh, comparison, Joe. <laughs> Thank you. Some uh, <laughs> liquid metaphors. But of course, none of that is to say that the US should have left when or in the manner it did. Perhaps they shouldn't have started the war. But obviously, once started, they had an obligation not to F things up even more. My, my view is that, is that it was always a long shot, this one. Uh, and it was probably going to fail because the Afghans are incredibly xenophobic and do not uh, like being... Uh, ruled by others and have the geography and the tribal system and the military uh, know-how to defy anyone who tries to invade and occupy them. But what was certainly the case was that the way that the Americans left was clearly going to undermine everything. Today, these complex weapon systems that uh, the Americans uh, introduced to Afghanistan relied on a bunch of contractors who maintained them and amended them and um, uh, and made them work. And when the Americans pulled out, they didn't just pull out themselves and pull out their troops and their advisors. They also took the contractors with them. So all this very complicated equipment uh, was, was more or less unusable. It's like leaving, um, I don't know, two grandparents in your house with a complicated telly with all the with all Netflix and all the, all, all the bits and whizzes and, and expecting them to use the remote. They need a grandchild around to... <laughs> <laughs> to, to get the telly working i certainly do and uh uh, uh the as you may have seen in the setup of the microphone here an hour ago and uh, you said uh this is me. rather think what happened with with the afghan army that they were left with all this sort of very high highfalutin equipment that none of them could use and their rifles still work but uh, uh the artillery and the missiles and uh, all the stuff requires software and uh, uh and high-tech support and and they took the americans took it with them and then the manner which they left, just, you know, turning the lights off in Bagram Air Base, um, not telling the Afghan army they were leaving, uh, leaving, I believe, 6,000 uh, vehicles, but taking the keys. Hmm. Um, like this sort of thing you know, is clearly uh, going to undermine the morale. And it's no surprise at all that the, uh, uh, the, 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 the thing fell flat on its face in, in, in a few weeks. So I've never been to Afghanistan, but I know you've been many times. Can you can you give me a little picture? I don't think you're going to be booking your, your ticket anytime soon, Joe, <laughs> to be honest. I'm... I think you missed your chance. <laughs> yeah, the, the ship sailed on that one, sadly. Um, but can you give me a little picture of it at, between 2001 and 2021? What, what's it like on the street? So by the time I got there, which was 2006, which is a full five years after uh, the cards I'd been installed and after all the stuff had gone in, um, Already, there was this incredibly uh, international, young uh, world growing in Kabul of, of kids who are at university, people watching Netflix, uh, using cell phones, taking, you know, on Instagram, on Facebook, on Twitter, 
Uh, so a whole new middle class sprung up where there'd been nothing like this before. I mean, there'd barely been electricity, I think, in, in Taliban uh, Afghanistan. Nothing had worked. They, there were sanctions. They were uh, completely isolated. Uh, now it felt very much like, you know, parts of Delhi uh, or uh, or Karachi or, or Tehran, where, you know, there's a whole world of partying and, and, uh, uh, and social media and all the rest of it. However, the countryside was often, you, you know, go walk 10 miles out of Kabul and you were more or less in exactly what had been there before 9-11. A lot of very remote settlements without roads going anywhere near them. Uh, Even in Kabul, uh, although the Americans had poured however many trillion dollars into Afghanistan, it was all going into the pockets of contractors and their own people. And there was very little infrastructure. I mean, the road from the airport to the diplomatic district was a shocker. It was like, you know, the very, very poorest bits of most backward bits of of boondocks India uh, on a very bad day in the monsoon. Uh, But this was the capital city, you know, that was nominally having this great rush of aid pouring in. And what you got, I think, in Afghanistan was something very much like what you got in Iran in the 1970s, where you had a small elite whose... Uh, you know, of, of uh, beautiful young things playing, playing hard, drinking hard, partying, whose parents had their hands in the uh, in the uh, in the the money, uh, often corruptly, uh, and were making money by various dodgy means. Um, and then you had a you know increasingly resentful uh, rural uh, heartland uh, that looked on these people as traitors, as quislings, as immoral, as uh, un-Islamic, as uh, uh, corrupt and unjust. Uh, And uh, they resented the privilege and the money and all the uh, luxuries of the city. And those guys, um, if they didn't join the Taliban, they certainly didn't support the regime against the Taliban. Uh, And as we've seen, at the end of the day, very few people were willing to die for Ashraf Ghani. Uh, they, They just gave up. Almost instantly in, in province. And that last week, we saw first Mazar, then Kandahar, then Herat, uh, and finally Kabul fall without a shot being fired as commander after commander just did a deal with the local Taliban and handed over their weapons. That rift you're talking about, does that map over the Popolzai and Gilzai divide, or was it worse than that? Well, it's, I mean, these tribal divides are there very importantly in the background. But what you've got basically is that the, the, Duranis and the Popozai uh, are landlords, have money, have resources, therefore were part of that world, had a house in Kabul, had Netflix, had all the rest of it. Their kids were going to university, uh, often going abroad, while the Gilzai were the dispossessed. They were the guys who were the day labourers, the herdsmen, and they were pissed off. They were sitting in the uh, in the villages watching people pass in flash cars or big land cruisers wondering why they all had the money while uh, they had to fight hard to earn a, a, a few a few um, dollars a day. So you can almost see this in Marxist rather than religious terms. Well, the two go together. It's, it's, it's a, as in Iran in the 1970s, it's a potent mixture of religious conservatism, which is outraged by the decadence and corruption of the rulers. It's a mixture of tribal... Uh, factors whereby the the rulers are a different tribe from you. And it's uh, a social difference in that uh, the rulers are richer than you and you're poor. 
Uh, and those three coming together, religion, tribal identity, and economics, uh, and your displeased and, and resentful of the ruling authority coming together, uh, create a potent reason uh, why what we saw last week happened. So, Willie, there was a famous 2013 Pew poll, which found that 99% of Afghans favor making Sharia the official law. 81% of Afghans favor making Sharia the official law. 81% favor corporal punishment like lashings for theft. 85% favor stoning as the punishment for adultery. And 79% favor a death penalty for leaving Islam or apostasy. Was there ever a widespread appetite for freedom and democracy in Afghanistan? Well, um, what there definitely was an appetite for was for justice. Right. And that was something which was seen to be often with the Taliban, where we saw uh, Sharia law uh, in, in its brutal form. Often peasants regarded it as the only way which they could get justice without having to pay for it through bribes and corruption. Um, and so freedom and democracy are not incompatible in any way with Islamic law and religious conservatism. But where you have a an elite who are seen to be publicly un-Islamic, to be decadent and corrupt, um, where you where democracy is seen to be a joke because the elections are rigged in favour of the Americans' puppet candidate, as un- undoubtedly happened with uh, Ashraf Ghani's election, uh, with the Americans just watching on while ballots were stuffed, and where freedom meant often, if you were a peasant, uh, a Gilzai in the rural heartland, the, the freedom to starve, the freedom to uh, be out of work, uh, the, the freedom to have your house raided by the Americans or maybe uh, a, a family member killed in in mistaken friendly fire like the drone strike we saw this week, then these things take a very different appearance. So I, I don't believe for a minute that you're dealing with sort of primeval barbarians who hate freedom in a sort of Bush sense, mm-hmm. not far from it. What you're dealing with is is uh, a very conservative people who see the ruling dispensation as corrupt and decadent and uh, and uh, illegitimate, both in the sense that they're put in by foreign rulers, their elections are rigged, uh, and uh, they're behaving in the interests of foreign puppeteers rather than the real Afghanistan. So I think if you had a poll and said, you know, are Afghans for freedom? Everyone would say they certainly are. Are Afghans for democracy? I'd suspect quite a lot would be. Uh, but if you had a poll saying, you know, do you really believe that uh, Ashraf Ghani is the legitimate ruler? Not many people would have said that. Do you have a favourite poem of the Taliban? <laughs> You're referring to uh, a book called The Poetry of the Taliban. Uh which I thought was very interesting because, you know, it's all very well to um, just take the position that the Taliban are terrorists and the enemy. But when you discover that young Taliban uh, fighters are writing poetry, it immediately humanizes them and you understand, in a sense, what they're fighting for. So um, I don't think anyone has ever claimed that the the poetry in the in this book, The Poetry of the Taliban, uh, is ever going to be winning the next Nobel Prize for, for literature. Um but it's a very interesting insight into what these guys think, mm. what they fear, what they're fighting for. Uh, and um, I thought it was an interesting book. Um, 
uh, there have been some lampoons on Twitter lately uh, about this book, but uh, I, no, I think it's an, <laughs> it's an interesting text. Has the Taliban changed since they were last in power? Too early to say. Too early to say, but, but uh, in, in many important respects, clearly not. There's still uh, a movement which is deeply ultra-conservative, which is, in its own view, patriotically Afghan and, and doesn't want foreign interference. Uh, and which does not want women in, in senior public positions. So are clearly some changes. I mean, they're much more PR savvy than they were. Uh, their, uh, their, their spokesmen are clearly aware of what the West wants to hear uh, in a way they weren't before. They clearly think that they can continue to do deals with the West in the way they have at Doha. Uh, and uh, the way they basically talked the Americans out of Afghanistan, uh, they promised not to attack American troops, and they've kept that promise, uh, by and large, um, which has allowed them to, to get where they are. And they are clearly better organized and less fractured than we believe them to be. Uh, I mean, it was a remarkable campaign that they waged uh, against that government, uh, and it was a very coherent one, and, and it... Uh, the speed and the efficiency of their uh, uh, taking of uh, each one of those major cities, Mazar, Herat, Kandahar, and then finally Kabul, uh, was a very militarily a very impressive performance, um, which no one really thought that they were capable of, uh, certainly at that speed. So they're, they're, they're more PR savvy. They're more centrally organized. Is their philosophy fundamentally different? Absolutely not. Uh, will they allow women to work? Probably yes, in some inferior positions. Will they be vengeful to the previous uh, employees and, and soldiers of the previous regime, despite their words? Yes, apparently there are endless accounts now of, of Taliban hunting down judges and soldiers and intelligence people. I mean, this is very bad news. There's no question that, uh, you know, this is bad news for Afghans. It's very, very bad news for Afghan women. It's bad news for America, which is now seen to have betrayed its, uh, broken all its promises, both to the Afghans and to its allies. It's bad for NATO because America's just behaved unilaterally and didn't even bother uh, trying to take their allies with them. It's bad news for India, which has lost a major regional ally. The only people that have done well out of it are Pakistan, who armed, trained and sheltered the Taliban while at the same time being given, managing to receive millions of dollars of American aid, which is rather a, a brilliant, um, uh, if if uh, entirely uh, uh, dishonest and, uh, and treacherous uh, way to behave, but nonetheless successful. And it's been very good for China, uh, which is now the principal foreign interlocutor uh, with the Taliban. The Taliban declared China to be old and trusted friends last week. Uh, and already the, the, the Mezvainak copper mine is beginning to operate uh, and, and major trade deals being done. So when you have people on the media talking about how the international community must do this or must do that, uh, they're, they're not really talking about a coherent unit because uh, China is, is playing its own game very successfully in, in, um, in Afghanistan. I uh, come back to Return of a King, which we were talking about earlier, uh, my book, and the last words written in 2012 are uh, quoted tribal elder and he says last month some american officers called me to a hotel in jalalabad said the elder one of them asked me why do you hate us and i replied because you blow down our doors 
enter our houses, pull our women by the hair and kick our children. We cannot accept this. We will fight back and we will break your teeth. And when your teeth are broken, you will leave just as the British have left before you. It's just a matter of time. And the next guy, his friend, said, these are the last days of the Americans. Next, it will be China. Wow. Willie, uh, <laughs> last question. Since 2001, the US government spent $2 trillion. That is $2,000 billion or $300 million per day every day for two decades in Afghanistan and in return got an ignominious retreat and a regime that dissolved like a dandelion in a summer's breeze. What should we infer from that juxtaposition? Well, there are many, many uh, lessons to be learned from this. Uh, But just, you know, what... uh, it's almost now will be held up, I'm sure, in all classes in future as a textbook example of how not to intervene in foreign affairs. Uh, I, everything went wrong. You're right. It's an astonishing failure considering the resources poured in. Uh, I, I saw a picture yesterday of what was described as Taliban special forces. What were they wearing? They were wearing American military uniform with night vision goggles, uh, sunglasses, shades, and all the rest of it. And this is the Badr uh, regiment, the the Afghan suicide squads, uh, who are now dressed in Afghan in U.S. special forces kit with helicopters, Black Hawks, night vision, sniper rifles, and all the equipment they've ever dreamt of. Uh, I mean, it is the most incredible cock-up. It's certainly the biggest disaster in American foreign policy since Vietnam, and I don't think we've even begun to take in uh, the scale of the uh, of how badly this is going to affect not just America but India, NATO, the West. And I'm sure historians will see it as a major moment when America went into retreat uh, and uh, the dominance of China uh, in geopolitics became self-evident and undeniable. William Dalrymple, thank you again for joining me. Thank you, Joe. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. For links, show notes, and the transcript, head to my website, thejspod.com. Until next time, thank you again for listening. Take care. Ciao.